Hi, my name is Quinn, and this is the exam in athlete. Today's guest is Olympian Caroline Burkle, and I am so excited my daddy got to speak to her. I sure hope you enjoy it. Welcome, guys. As you heard, we have an outstanding guest today, Olympian Caroline Burkle. This is a powerful conversation. It is a more than anything an educational conversation. This is one of those episodes that I'm just simply proud to be a part of, and my daughter Quinn wanted to be a part of it too. Because the first question we ask Caroline is to give advice to girl dads like myself. How do I take Quinn and her younger sister Gray and turn them into powerful young females? And Caroline had some absolutely great feedback, but. We did something a little different today. We didn't walk through Caroline's athletic journey in detail. What we did is have a conversation that covered a number of topics I felt Caroline was uniquely qualified to speak on. And quite frankly, she over-delivered on every single topic. She molds young athletes' minds and performance for a profession, and it comes through pretty clearly in this podcast, but because of the format, I'm going to linger on her journey a little bit to make sure that each of you have some context. Caroline, like I said, is an Olympian. She won a bronze medal in the 4x200 meter freestyle at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. She is an entrepreneur. She's the co-founder of Rise Athletes, which is a virtual mentoring program where professional athletes, Olympic athletes, empower and mentor young athletes with transferable skills that not only impact their athletic journey, but also their life. She is a multiple-time All-American. She is a multiple-time national champion. This was at the University of Florida. And in 2008, she was the NCAA Female Swimmer of the Year after breaking Janet Evans' 500-meter freestyle record. I believe at the time it was the longest standing record in NCAA history, and she broke it in 2008. In 2010, she retired from the sport. She battled an extended period of depression, which we don't really get into, but we refer to it a couple of times in the podcast, so you should know about that. But if you are interested in hearing more about that part of her journey, I recommend checking out her appearance on the insanely popular Rich Roll podcast. She and Rich go into it in detail, and we also spoke a little bit about a moment in that podcast, which I felt was particularly powerful. So again, we cover her advice for girl dads like myself. How do I raise powerful young girls? We spoke about flawed coaching methods, flawed motivational methods, and how to best create environments of excellence and urgency without berating young athletes or creating toxic environments. We spoke about the trap of building an identity around sport and success. We talked about contradictory emotions, which I think is a powerful topic. We talked about what true resilience is to Caroline and the difference between resilience and happiness. We spoke a bit about unhealthy emotional examination and what healthy emotional examination looks like. We spoke about small acts of kindness and how powerful they are. And finally, Caroline shared a bit about her passion, her virtual mentoring program called Rise Athletes. 
If you're interested in learning more about Caroline and her journey, you can find out more at carolineberkel.com. On that website, you'll also find a link to Rise Athletes. And if you are a coach or an athlete and you think you will benefit from what they're doing at Rise, please reach out to Caroline, reach out to her team. I promise you, you will not regret it. Caroline, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom. I was so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you. Ladies and gentlemen, the powerful Caroline Burkle. Hi, how are you, Caroline? Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for bearing with me. I have um I had a desktop, but it completely crashed about two oh, weeks no. ago. So I had multiple monitors. So now I'm just operating off of my laptop. <laughs> so which is fine, but I'm not used to just, you know, having a small screen to look at. You may never go back. I don't even use a desktop anymore. So we have three laptops. I don't ask me why, but one of them is basically our girls Disney Plus machine. That's great. Anyways, let's get going. I just, I'm I'm thrilled to have you. I oftentimes kind of methodically walk through an athletic journey. However, I'm not going to do that today. If listeners are interested in Caroline's athletic journey or want to take a deeper dive into her career, there's a number of great interviews that exist. What we're going to do today, Caroline, is just explore a number of topics that I think you're particularly well-suited to discuss. And I also have personal relationships with, which should make for some interesting back and forth. And then as you see fit, bring in your athletic anecdotes, bring in your swimming anecdotes, and we'll we'll go from there. But I'm going to start this on a completely self-serving topic. And that topic is raising badass, self-actualized young girls. I've already shared that I'm the proud daddy of a two-year-old and a five-year-old girl. and being their daddy is the thing in life I want to be best at. So I want to start with asking an Olympian, a leader, a compassionate soul's advice for girl dads that are striving to raise powerful young girls that are kind of compassionate, but also brave enough to chase whatever the dreams they want to chase. So walk us through your experience if you'd like, and just give us advice for dads trying to raise self-assured young girls. Well, I grew up, I think, oblivious a little bit to all of this. You know, I didn't know what the definition of of being a badass girl was or, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, it's a little different than it is today too that that conversation wasn't had with us really. And that's just the, you know, how times have shifted. But, you know, by the time I got to high school, it started to become a conversation with with young women. And I think that it's so important to just encourage young girls and listen to them. And I, I think that we all have this innate nurturing, like women are nurturing and we have this feminine power that is extremely confusing sometimes to even ourselves. Like, how do you trust your emotions? How do you trust that you're really good at something? How do you know that you can be soft and strong at the same time? Like how, how do you really navigate the world of sports if you're supposed to be a woman? Like it's, the million dollar question. And so I think just listening to young girls and what they experience and and really supporting them. I know that helped me a lot as a young girl, just being able to be heard and understood, even if it's hard to understand. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned listening and wanting to be heard because one of the reasons I asked you that question is I have this fundamental desire to appreciate what my girls are thinking and what they're feeling. And that can be difficult for fathers sometimes. I know you're friends with Alexi Pappas. Did you read her book, Bravey? Yes. Yeah. I read her book. I've raved about it on the podcast. I've gifted it to a number of people in my life. And I'll tell you, Caroline, the thing that touched me about Alexi's book was that it gave me this intimate access to the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions of my daughter. It became a very powerful read for me because my daughter's five. Most of her book takes place when she was fairly young. And I couldn't help but read her book in the voice of my five-year-old daughter. So I imagine when you're sharing your story like you have so often, you're thinking about impacting young female athletes. I wonder, do you think about impacting men, fathers, brothers, or friends that are interacting with girls, young girls, daughters? Yeah, I actually don't really have an audience specifically in mind whenever I talk about things. I grew up with brothers and so I don't I don't have sisters, so I actually don't know that what that would feel like. So I'm the only girl and I'm the oldest. So, you know, I learned a lot from them and I learned a lot about the give and take of accepting everybody as they are when it comes to how people operate, when it comes to how people learn things, when it comes to how they are able to perform and achieve. You know, also knowing that everybody has their own things that they're working on too. And so again, accepting people where they are, like your two daughters may be completely different, you know, with how they grow up and understand things and learn things. And growing up myself, I was not the same as everyone else with how I learned information and, and you know, understood the way the world worked or, you know, I I just didn't, I saw it so inside out and felt like I saw everyone's souls and I could feel their energy and I understood their, their emotions maybe before they did. And that scared me because then I would overthink everything, but I started to slowly unfold and mature and realize that that was a superpower. And I didn't really realize that until just several years ago. And so it took me a really long time. So that's part of the reason why I think listening to young women and listening to young girls is so important because there's a lot of things that are hard to explain if you're a feeler. They're hard to explain if you have those types of emotions that you can't put into words and you can't tangibly grasp or even articulate in a way that anyone else would understand. So when I talk about things, it's usually in a general sense of like, this is just a way to view this and take it or leave it or use it how you want because everybody will use it differently. It's more of a guide. I'm not telling you what's right or wrong. I'm I'm offering an example. I think that's interesting because one of the things I try to do for my girls is go out of my way to display powerful women. I mean, when I'm going to have you on the podcast, I sit down with my five-year-old and I say, here's what Caroline did. Or when I'm reading Bravey, here's what Alexi did. Or maybe it's just exposing them to powerful characters like Mulan or Raya that are not your typical damsel in distress. But as you say that, it makes me think, because my daughters are certainly different, that maybe forcing roles upon them that don't necessarily speak to them is not always going to be the case. Maybe there's nothing wrong with showing them powerful women that take on those roles, but be careful if that's not 
how my daughter identifies. I'm kind of hearing when I hear you speak. Yeah, asking questions, just learning. Let's move on. I appreciate you doing that with me, but let's move on to college. And before we get into your story, I want to linger on coaching and motivation and get your thoughts specifically on how coaches speak to athletes in the name of motivation or winning. We both competed in college for legendary coaches, tough coaches, coaches that were wildly successful, but pushed us to the limits, both physically and mentally. And I don't know how your coach interacted with his athletes, but speaking for me, I had the type of coaches that would cross the line probably into verbal abuse in the name of motivation that happened to be the type of personality within me that I could handle it. But I'm going to be careful with how I say this, but I was in the locker room with where appalling things were said to young men. And some of the best ball players in the country were ruined with this type of motivation, this type of hammering young athletes. And so I want to ask you, whether you had experience with that or not, what do you think when you hear about that coaching method of verbally hammering athletes to push them to their limits? What's your take on it? What do you make of the success rate? Do you think it has a place in athletics anymore? Mm, Great question. This is definitely a delicate topic because I think about it all the time. There's a confusing message sent when you are yelling at an athlete in a way, in an unhealthy way. So if, if you are yelling at an athlete, putting their character down, talking about their body or different things like that, that's a confusing message because what it's saying is I am yelling at you because I care about you. And that's not healthy. Like that's not a healthy back and forth, especially when we, you know, you can look into all of this field in general and understand that that is just a miscommunication of needs of what the coach needs from the athlete. And then the athletes understanding it as either you care a lot about me. So you're yelling at me or you're emotionally abusing me, verbally abusing me, and I'm not going to listen. So it depends on how that athlete has also connected with that topic. If they're connecting with that topic in a way that's bringing up stuff from their own past, they're going to have their own preconceived notions about it already. So for example, if you have a coach that's, you know, saying the worst of the worst things and name calling and uh, demeaning and things like that, let's say you've had an experience like that already and it brings up something from your past. You're already shut out because you're, you're going back into your fight or flight from what's already happened in your life before. And if nothing's ever happened in your life before, you just think this is normal for some reason or you still accept it. So it's confusing. It's a, it's a confusing topic because you can't have a coach, right? That's just like, no worries. It's okay. Everything's fine. Like, for, you know, forget about it. Like not a big deal because then it's like, well, what do you care about? Like, are, you know, I need to understand like where we're going here. Like, are you in it? Or are you out? Like what's going on? And then you can't have a coach that's just screaming and yelling and demeaning. So Finding that happy medium, I think, is where the nurturing coach comes into play. And that's where the question asking happens. That's where the understanding of how they are as an athlete happens. That's where the listening and the dialogue and the tell me more about this. Those types of things are so empowering for an athlete to hear and to understand. And when you don't have that, you're just being told what to do and you're just being told how you are. It's a very confusing thing. Honestly, I don't think anyone's really figured that out because I think 
the delicate line, like I said, of verbal and emotional abuse, and then absolutely being a, a completely checked out coach. It's like, you got to find the happy medium there because you're walking a fine line of, of what's motivating and what's not. For us in college, you know, I came into Rice University, we were the defending national champions, we were the number one team in the country. So that locker room was filled with the best ball players across the country. But in that locker room, nothing was a mistake. Everything was a comment on your courage. And the way it would be articulated, some players that literally would spend half the season being the best hitters in the country would fold under that. And I felt even at a young age that that lacked a sense of self-awareness, that some players need to be treated differently. But as I've aged, I think that that environment where kids are being called cowards or kids are being, and these are men, but 20-year-old kids are being told things that they should never hear is not an environment that allows talent to thrive. So here's what I kind of think. I think coaches have to be tough like you're saying. I think there's a clear benefit to pushing athletes to their mental limits, their physical limits, but a good coach is mindful of how that's done. And I think it's so clear that talent thrives in environments of enjoyment where you're free to be in the moment and allow that talent to thrive. I, I'll share an anecdote. So I had the head coach from the University of Texas on, David Pierce, who was a coach of mine. And we were speaking about motivating players off air, but I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. And he was very critical of himself early in his career because he had one way. He just hammered players. That was the only way he knew how to coach. And then he said one day he realized that once I see effort, once I see that you care as much as anyone else on the team, my entire job at the University of Texas is to free you up. What do you suggest to coaches that want to create that same environment, that environment of excellence and urgency without using those tactics? What do you tell coaches to find that balance. Now, I I also am in no way, shape, or form telling everybody that they need this or assuming that everybody needs this, but I firmly believe that every single human on the planet and every coach, the only way that they're going to be able to connect with others, including athletes, is to look within themselves and to understand their own things that they need to work on. And, and again, I'm, I, I'm sure so many coaches do this and I, you know, I don't specifically ask people or coaches like, do you, you know, go to therapy or do you talk about what, what helpful things in your life you need to, to work on? I've, I've never outwardly done that, but I, as I learn from those that do the best coaches that I have spoken with and that I do talk to are actively working on themselves. And we can't, as a society, continue to bark orders and to coach others unless we know how to lead ourselves and unless we understand ourselves, because there's no way that we can tell others what to do emotionally, physically, mentally, without knowing what our own blocks and barriers are, because it's easy to project on people. So take a, a therapist, for example, or really anyone in a position where they're helping others. If they don't know their own biases or their own their own conditioned responses to things, their own understanding of why they are the way they are, they're going to project all of their unhealed things onto somebody else. And that goes across the board with us with Rise, you know, like all of our coaches have to understand, like you cannot have the projection of your own experiences onto these athletes or therapists or parents or 
anyone. It's just, we're human. We all have those things that could potentially come in the way of coaching someone else. And so I really think that that is, that's the thing that makes a great coach is if they understand themselves enough to know what are my, what are the things stopping me? Like, what are my issues I still need to resolve within myself? What am I angry at? What am I, what's blocking me from being great? And is there maybe a possibility that if on my worst days, I'm projecting that on others? I think that's the question we all have to ask ourselves or no one's going to get anywhere at all. Like, so, you know, you look at some of the best coaches in basketball, for example, you name them, they're they're all pretty self-actualized, the ones that had the longest careers with the longest success. Quick success, different story. You can be a hard ass and, and things can drop off because of this exact issue right here. But I found that the longevity of a coach and the athletes and the teams, the ones in the programs that last the longest and the best are the coaches that really are doing the internal work and not afraid to talk to their athletes about, hey, you know, lost my temper yesterday. Here's what I really meant. Frank Bush of Arizona was a great example of that. He was fantastic swimming. He would say things, you know, like I was frustrated. Here's what I really meant. I'm going to share what I really meant. And here are my expectations. Here's what I expect of you all. Here's what I'm, but he was self-actualized enough to have that conversation with the athletes. And that was so empowering because they were able to see his humanness and know that he wants the best for me, but he's also a human and we're all working on this together versus like, he's right. I'm wrong. This is just the way it is. I'm going to tell you this is you're in good company because most of the athletes, and this is intentionally I have on this show, have had their career and are through it. And what I've noticed and what I'm observing as I hear you talking is that almost every athlete that speaks fondly of a coach speaks about a coach that was, they maybe didn't use this word, but was vulnerable in front of them, that shared the things that they were not good at. And that's why that anecdote from memory from Coach Pierce sticks out for me is because I was impressed. He was critical of himself early in his career as a head coach. He will freely admit that that wasn't the way. By creating an environment where you were completely on edge at all times, some athletes thrive under that. I take that back. I think some athletes make do under that, but I think all athletes are better when they're joking around. Like the athletes that are hitting a home run and dancing down the first baseline may piss some people off, but they are in complete jovial experience mode. I mean, they are just having fun. The ones that are joking around and you're going, you need to get serious in the batting cage. No, no, no. That's where they're going to be the most talented. And every person I've had on, as you were talking, they, they speak fondly of coaches that shared, this is what I went through. And that had the biggest impact on their lives. Absolutely. I mean, that's how I feel about Anthony Nesty at the University of Florida. He's now the head coach, but he was an assistant coach under Greg Troy when I was there. And he had won a gold medal in the Olympics. Like he had done the thing everybody was there to want to do. That helps. It used to relax you when you had your own success. Yeah, it helps relax you. I mean, he had his own battles that he was facing at the time, just up and coming and, and working on that. But I think like as a coach, but he had this way of just understanding himself. And he used to tell us stories of his learnings and the things that he, you know, figured out. And he listened, you know, he listened when there was something up or 
he'd ask questions and that just, it, it goes to show you they're curious and a curious coach is a coach that's going to elevate the athletes at all costs. That's, that's what they're there for. And the, and a coach that's ready to learn from the athletes too. Like I'm not a coach, but I'm a mental performance coach. And I, I learn from them like every day of my life. You know, I learn from athletes that are 15, 20 years younger than me. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about is it's also human nature to gravitate towards leaders that don't have everything figured out. Like anytime I hear a, a spiritual guru, whatever you want to call it, a thought leader that just, this is how you should act. You mentioned that earlier. Like, I'm not telling you how to act. I'm a guide. If you have it all figured out, you turn me off from the very beginning. When you speak in absolutes, you turn me off because very likely I'm going to say, wait a second, that doesn't apply to me. But let's keep moving forward. Let's go to your time at Florida. Your time at Florida seemed to be such an influential time in your life. You had enormous success. You were a national champion multiple times over. You were an All-American multiple times over. You broke amazing records there. But you also started this fundamental examination of your worth and your value and your identity, which was about 15, 18 years before I even thought about those terms. So I want to know what events led to this fundamental examination in college of things like value and identity, and what did you find? I think what led to it was just this over and over continual hunger for something else. Something wasn't fulfilling me. And I did the whole like, oh, you've got it good. You're, you know, you're on a scholarship at the University of Florida and you're going to school and you, you know, are swimming well and, you know, you have a house roof over your head. And I, I made every excuse in the book, but something still was missing. Like there was a missing link. And I remember going into my academic counselor's office, Tim Eit, who's amazing, quite often because he was also, you know, a counselor and he was able to talk to us on a human level, not just here are your classes, here are your courses, get going, go to tutor, get A's, finish up the school year. He was not. He wanted to know about you and your love life and this and that and the other. And he was just like, tell me about it. Let's go. Let's hear it. How you doing? Like, tell me, how's your heart? He was just like a big teddy bear of a man. And everybody really gravitated towards him because he was so respectful and so sturdy in who he was as a human being. And he would question me a lot about these things. Like, well, what do you, what are your values? Like, what do you want in life? You know, what are your values? You know, just really, he really helped. And I remember having no idea when he would ask me those things. And that was a really big wake up call for me because I didn't, I didn't think about him because I just felt like I was so tethered to the sport that I was in and the path that I was on. And it was so subconscious to me. His questions helped me so much more. And even if I told him that to this day, he'd say, oh, Burkle, no, 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 that was all you. You're fine. No worry. You know, but he doesn't realize how much of an impact he makes on human beings. He's still there making an impact. Everybody loves Tim. Like he's just that kind of guy. And I wouldn't have ever questioned the things that I needed to question about myself and my worth and my values. And am I a swimmer? Am I Caroline the human first? What do I really want to do in life? Like if I don't know why? you know, or all these questions came to me because of him. And I just started to think about them. Am I hearing you right that you were winning national championships, you were all American, but you just weren't fulfilled? You weren't happy? Is that the feeling it was? It's not that I wasn't happy. I just, 
I've, I've never had a bone in my body to think that happiness comes from winning. I've never been that way since I was a little girl. I didn't care about winning. Like I would literally disqualify myself from races as a little girl because I was too afraid of winning. Like that, that was the kind of girl I was. I was afraid to win. So I didn't have this like hungry, aggressive attitude to win. I just knew that I was good. And so I think that was helpful for my confidence. But I always saw myself as more and I didn't know what that was. And I had no idea where that would go, but I had a feeling it was there. When I explored who I was and if I was just a swimmer, what would that mean for me? If I was a human without swimming, what would that mean for me? I explored all those things and I just felt hungry for more, I think was what it was. It's not that I wasn't happy with what I had. I just, I was curious. There was more to life than what I was seeing. And I was always into that. Always, like the courses, even that I took in college, I wanted to know more about other cultures and other worlds. And I took like 30 different languages in college. And I just, I wanted to know more. And I didn't know why, but I did. And I think that curiosity is what really led me to my success in swimming because it wasn't necessarily just focusing on swimming 24 seven. And that's what made me great. It's my curiosity for life. Like I wanted to be great at whatever I did. So swimming was just a byproduct of that curiosity. Well, I can identify with not wanting to be seen as an athlete. I went out of my way so that individuals knew that I was more than an athlete. But what I definitely did, Caroline, was build an identity around success and achievement, maybe in a way that you didn't. More than that, probably the corrosive part is for a long time in life, it was important to me that others recognize my achievement, which is never a good thing. But my identity was being successful. And here's the tricky part I want you to comment on. Building an identity around something like success can actually be very helpful. And it certainly doesn't make you a bad person. I've always been kind and caring and gone out of my way to help other people. So the way I look at it is in many ways, I never want to lose that identity that's somewhat tied to success. What I want to teach myself is that I can bust my ass. I can avoid being average or ordinary without tying my value to achievement. So how do you view identities that are helpful in some ways, but then very unhelpful in others? Well, I think we have to first figure out our own definitions of what an identity is. And I think for for me, I mean, there's everyone's gonna have a different answer to this. But I think for, for me, my definition of identity was a, you know, smacked a label on me. That's who I am nothing else. And that's what others want me to be. So the important distinction I think here is that just because I had a curiosity for what all could have been done, didn't mean that I didn't have a hard time detaching from what others thought I was. To say that again, just because I knew I was more, didn't mean it was, wasn't hard as hell to let go of what everybody else saw me as because it was because that was my identity issue was that I was doing it for everyone else and everyone else loving me because I was a swimmer and a great swimmer was hard to let go of because then it's like, who am I pleasing? 
And that's where the realization of the people pleaser comes in, which is a whole nother topic. But that right there was why it was difficult for me. That was why it was difficult for me to let go and transition. That's what I realized during that curiosity phase is like, I know there's more, but what will others think of me if I'm not this? That piece was hard for me. And it goes back to the talking about girls and women earlier. You know, it's like a lot of that was ingrained as a culture back in the 90s. Like, you know, you just be a good girl. And like, like that's part of the conversation that has evolved in 30 years. That piece of who am I without this can't fully be understood unless you really take into account who you think you'd be for others. Because I think that's a big plaguing piece for a lot of people. And it's why a lot of people can't let go. Because other people approve of them. Other people love them. Other people are proud of them. And that feels so good. And who will I be if they're not, you know, will they be proud of me? Will they approve of me? Like if I don't have a medal anymore and I'm just, you know, working a nine to five, are they going to think I'm good enough? Social media, same thing. If you don't show every two inches of your business on there, are you really an entrepreneur? We do that more than we realize. And it's so psychologically and somatically ingrained in us that it's like we, and I'm not saying everyone, but I would bank to say a lot of human beings have this cross their mind at some point, especially elite athletes or performers. And that's part of the reason why those transitions and all of that conversation around it is so difficult. Because when you do it for other people, performance, achievement, instead of doing it for yourself so that you can share your gifts with the world. It's two totally different things. And I got real caught up in the former. Even if you're achieving for yourself, if you're banking your happiness on achievement, it's a really dangerous game to play. And I think that was more me. I mean, I certainly felt this need to be a big deal to be recognized for my achievements as an athlete or as a high achiever, it's almost impossible not to start to derive happiness or a sense of self-worth from what you do on the field or what you do in the classroom or what you do in business. And the tricky part is, again, back to that, it can drive you and it can help you. It's just a really dangerous game to play when you put your value, your identity, your essence into things that are really outside your control, it doesn't often end well. Like for me, it went well for probably 36 years and things were going well and I'm kicking life in the ass. This works really well. But then when you do hit a major setback and then you start thinking, well, who am I if I'm not successful, Clay? Who am I if I'm not successful, Caroline? That's who everyone expects me to be. But even if you're not looking at outside expectations, it's really dangerous to peg your happiness in that. So that's the journey I've been on is pegging my worth and my essence to things like relationships and character and effort, which is much easier said than done. I'll say that. But it's a really worthy conversation, I'll say. But let's let's move on to something you've said multiple times, which really resonates with me. You said for a lot of your life, you haven't felt worthy of your feelings. And that struck a chord with me because I think it's something that many of us experience. Walk me through what you mean when you say at times you don't feel worthy of your feelings. 
growing up, as I mentioned, I, I had a lot of feelings. I was a big feeler. I performed based on feel. Everything was feel, feel, feel. And I couldn't understand that because that wasn't the way that athletes perform. They perform on metrics and times and stats and splits. And, you know, that was the thing. Luckily, my club coach growing up understood me. And I think that was a huge help. But as I got into college, that became very confusing right off the bat because I was like, whoa, 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 I'm very different. Like I need to feel understood here. And so I just kept my mouth shut. So my feelings were always confusing because I always tried to fit in a mold that didn't work for me. It's like, I'm not a math, logic, numbers, stats, splits, mind. I am a feeling, images, visuals, sensations. I'm flowery in that way. Like that is how I operate. I'm artistic. So I'm you don't creative. care what the time was. If it felt really good, then I, I succeeded. That seems very, very healthy to me. I didn't know my own times. I still don't even remember my times. You could never, I could never tell you what time I went to the Olympics. I could not tell you what time. I have no idea. All of my best friends were opposite of me, which was helpful. My brother, total opposite of me. He was a genius with splits and times. He could tell me everything to a T about me and himself. And he went to the Olympics too in 2012. So it's like he, you know, there's a, there's an example of siblings that are polar opposites, everything that they do. And we could still succeed. And we still succeeded on that exact same level of swimming. I didn't understand my feelings. My big feelings were a detriment to me is what I, what I heard. So that was what I understood. And I had to start to reframe that as feelings are information. And that didn't come until almost the very end of my career. And once I understood that how I feel is simply information and I need to listen to that, and then I can use that as an understanding of myself. Am I creating the story or is this something that I'm, I'm feeling as a real experience in my body and in my mind that I can think about, okay, why is this happening? Again, getting curious. I'm back in the curiosity zone. So I took this amazing gift I had of feeling and then paired it with this amazing other thing called curiosity and being curious about what I'm experiencing was was really helpful for me. Uh, and then I started to be a little less shameful of it because I didn't see them as this like dramatic issue. I saw it as they're just information. These things that I'm experiencing are information. And I am a human body going through these experiences, learning from them, growing from them. And I don't need to solve them. I don't need to fix them. I need to understand them so that I can be better. Tell me if this is right, that these were relatively healthy feelings, but they didn't fit within the mold of the swimming world. So that's why you felt like you didn't deserve those feelings. Is that right? These yes. weren't yes. negative feelings. Was, oh, wow. Yes. And wow. that was okay. during swimming. And, you know, I've had my dose of unhealthy feelings. I mean, I went through a very long period of depression after swimming, even in swimming, I went through several months of that. And so obviously those are negative and harmful, but the way that I understood them was the first thing that I understood was my body is breaking down. And when my body would break down, my mind would always follow, you know, it's kind of back to what we talk about, even on our coaches corner podcast with Rich and Chris and Alexi, it's like mood follows action. Like I had to physically change my state in order for my mind to change. And that's the epitome of feeling like that is the definition of feeling. So when a lot of people are like, well, I don't have feelings. I don't want to feel it's like mood follows action. It, you have to feel your body before you start to create the thoughts. And we're so quick as a society to just try and switch our thinking. 
Like, I just need to switch my thinking and I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to sit here until I do. <laughs> and it's like, well, you got to breathe first off. And second off, you know, figure out what your body needs in that moment. And so all of these superpowers that I used innately throughout my career all became something important afterward. And so I, I was able to start to utilize those through depression and start to act in ways that would help my brain and my mind and, and be able to slowly move out of those negative thoughts and those negative thought processes. Let's talk about something that's very closely aligned that you speak a lot about, which is this idea of contradictory emotions, which is something I think you've you've hit on again that may seem unique, but I really think it's universal. We're all these emotional dichotomies. I can be completely confident while also dealing with a lot of self-doubt. I can be filled with gratitude while also struggling and anxious at times. So what's been your relationship with contradictory emotions and what have you learned from identifying this thought pattern? It goes back to, you know, mentioning what I just said about how when I was training and competing and I had big feelings, they were just wrong and needed to be fixed. And that came from outside or that was you internally telling yourself that? Well, that was me internally, but it comes from the conditioned responses that I have about what feelings and emotions mean. And to me, they were weak and, you know, I didn't need to have them and I needed to fix them. So that's an example of that extreme to where it's either black or white, Caroline, like get it in or get it out of your mind. And you can't possibly be hurting and enjoy yourself at the same time. You either need to figure it out. You know, it's like there's just one answer, one way. And I never could, I couldn't get out of that. And 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 it was so confusing. And by the way, this is all before I started to do the talks with Tim and the self-actualization and the curiosity. But for a long time there, it was just like, you either feel this way or you don't. Then you need to figure it out. Like too bad. You can't have two feelings at once. <laughs> you either need to be upset or you need to be happy. And there was just this one answer for everything. And I remember being like, but that doesn't make sense. Like I'm happy, but I'm also like frustrated. So I'm having both things. And then I, you know, I go into the future and, and we talk about transitioning from sport. And I think about the same thing, how it crept back up again. Oh, Caroline, you should just be grateful. You had a great career. You got a medal. Just get over it. Get over it. Be happy. You're fine. Everyone should be happy. You're happy. Everyone's happy for you. Get over it. You're grateful. You have a roof over your head. You're eating food. You're fine. And that same thing came back where it's like, you can't be feeling upset because you have this medal from the Olympics. So it's interesting to think about how quickly we can jump to only allowing ourselves to feel one thing or experience one thing. And I've just recently in the past several years learned that you can hold two emotions at the same time. You can hold, I am so grateful for this and it was an incredible experience and I loved it. And also it was hard as hell and I'm having a really difficult time right now and I'm not feeling great and I'm questioning myself and my worth. And both of those things can be true. And I hope that if I can deliver any message that that is one of them, because I, for so long, did not believe that. I, for so long, tried to squeeze every ounce of, what do they call it now, toxic positivity out of myself, where it's like, you can't possibly be upset or have any feelings that are negative. You just need to be happy, proud, grateful, and move on. 
being able to hold both really allowed me to have more compassion for myself, more drive to be better. It allowed me to understand others better, coach others better. It allowed me to be more coachable and take feedback better. Like just understanding these types of things allows your body to open up to the possibilities of what all there could be happening. Because we're not just this singular thing that's walking around with one emotion all the time. I think that's such a powerful thought. And to hear you describe it, it seems obvious, but it's not something that's pointed out enough. You're just kind of speaking to my soul because I've got the most wonderful family, the most wonderful friends. I've had enormous financial success, but I have this ambient level of feeling like an underachiever. And it's not that I lack self-awareness. I know my opportunities. I know how privileged I am. And honestly, it pisses me off. I'm like, Clay, you POS, like, don't you get it? Like, things are wonderful. But to hear you articulate that and say, no, everyone's dealing with some sort of dichotomy and it's perfectly okay to feel grateful on one hand and be struggling or be dealing with some sort of ambient level of underachievement on the other. And I think it's refreshing to hear you articulate it that way. And I think that has a lot to do with having the confidence to bring all of you with you to the table. I forgot who said that, but I read that somewhere. It's like, have the confidence to bring all of you with you, the good and the bad. And that's been a process for me. That wasn't in my toolkit until maybe, I don't know, 18 months, two years ago. Like my narrative was strength. My narrative was success. Speaking honestly about struggles and saying, no, you know, at the same time, I've had some struggles and some anxiety is completely new to me. And I think it takes voices like yours to to bring that out of people. Yeah. I mean, there's always a place for stoicism, you know, but I think a lot of people, it would benefit them to understand that you can be a successful athlete and do amazing things and also have a feeling of, I kind of like wonder what else there is out there, for example. I would beg to say most of the greatest athletes have that experience. It doesn't, one thing should not take away from the other. That's the most important thing to remember is one experience is not going to take away from another. We have to be aware of what's distracting us and what's just part of our curiosity. Like what's a total distraction? What's not helping me? And then what does motivate me? You know, everyone's different. And I think we just have to put our focus where our focus lies in that moment and really figure out what what our goal is. I've really stood by that because I think it's an important thing for a lot of athletes to understand, you know, especially my peers that are figuring out they should retire. And my answer to them is, you know, like they ask me questions and my answer to them is, you know, you'll know, you'll know in your bones when you're completely ready to pivot your focus to something else. And if your focus is still on half and half where you're like, I still have a little left in me. See it through. Like you'll know when you're ready to completely pivot your focus. Your body will tell you. Your whole soul will be so interested and lit up about this next thing. It doesn't mean you hate the sport either. (laughs) It's like there's just this, there's okay to hold both. You mentioned stoicism and save that thought because I definitely am big on on balance and I want to get there. But before we do, you alluded to the time after the Olympics where you separated yourself from swimming for 
I guess around a decade or so. And I want to explore that time period, this period of searching, of wondering, of kind of what now. And the reason I want to do that, Caroline, is because there are these giant words that we all have an intimate relationship with. They're words like grit and resilience and effort and perseverance. And they're held in such high esteem. They're, they're deified if you're me. And I think they should be in many ways because they're wildly important. But for a very long time, I thought that once I'm resilient, my problem is solved. And I learned the hard way that resilience is not synonymous with happiness. Resilience is not success. There's a lot of space between that effort and happiness or fulfillment. And oftentimes that space is gigantic. And in your case, that space was 10 years wide where it sounds like you were pretty damn resilient. You were giving effort, but you were having trouble finding what was next. So walk me through that experience of, or that space you were in of uncertainty. And what was your relationship with resilience or effort or grit or whatever you want to call it when you were in that space? Yeah, I, so I walked away from the sport in 2010. And when I did, I just knew that I was ready. Like I said, just now I knew I was ready for something different. I was curious enough to step away, knowing that I've had a a good run. I know I could do more, but I know that if I do more, I'm still going to be in the same position figuring out like these other things I'm continually curious about almost. And I struggled because what I recognized is that, well, I didn't struggle at first. At first I hit the ground running did all the same things. And, you know, I had had a tumultuous career in some ways with regards to just different things that came up with, you know, relationships and coaches and and things like that, that were very harmful and painful. And I was running from them. I didn't know this at the time, but the only thing I knew how to do really well was find a community and get going and start doing other things to keep yourself occupied. I knew how to do that well. I was very driven. I knew how to do that well. So I immediately went and joined Lululemon and started working there while I was still in school. And I just made a community immediately. And I loved it because I had a purpose again. And then I started training. And I started training, 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 training so much to the fact that to the point where, you know, I, I became obsessive over this thing that I was like, I'm not doing enough. I need to do more because again, I was worthy because I was making other people happy. And now I felt like no one was proud of me anymore. So I started just training and, and I moved back home because I was starting to pick up on some depression. And then I got sick. I was just not eating. Uh, I was going through some disordered eating stuff. I just didn't have any faith in myself anymore because I didn't feel anyone was proud of me. And I had gained all my love through what I did. And that was that, that moment where I had all these flashbacks to my conversations with Tim. And it's like, oh my God, this is what he meant. Like, what are my values? I don't know. Like, what am I doing? I don't know. You know, I thought about it then, but it's all changing now. And I don't know who I am as, as a human being. And I started to dig deep and figure out who I was. 
And in that process, I realized that I wanted to help other athletes do this. And that's when I went to grad school at the University of Tennessee for sports psychology. And, and I, my, with my goal to start the business that we start now, like to help other athletes understand how, who they are as a human being, as well as performing at their highest peak levels. But during that time, it was just, gosh, it was six to seven years of just running physically, literally, emotionally, running from all of the things that I didn't face, all of the things that I, yeah, I was just running. I was just, it's so hard to explain it now because there's so many things that happened in those seven years. We could take another hour to talk about them, but I didn't allow myself to be loved for who I was. I was chasing and running from the pain of just being me without anything else attached to my name. I was running from different abuse cycles. I was running from different situations. And at the end of the day, it all came down to self-worth. Do you think if that resilience or that grit is not tied to some sort of fundamental acceptance of who you are, then you are spinning your wheels? That being gritty and being resilient is, is not enough if you're not figuring out who you are and accepting who you are? Am I, am I saying that right? Resilience and grit, I think, come as a byproduct of not running away. Like you can either run away or you can run toward. And I was running away. I could have resilience all day long if I'm running away because it's like, yeah, like I'm going to ignore all my problems and just keep trying to achieve and perform and collect degrees and accolades. And like, hopefully somebody will be proud of me. But that's not really resilience, you know, like resilience is when I really stopped and sat still and understood what my issues were and looked deep within, had a couple years of some serious breakdowns before I really knew, like, I'm a resilient human being that can come back from anything painful. I can know who I am outside of sport. I can understand these things that I've been through or because I'm running from things that I didn't face. I can understand that I'm running away from just being Caroline without any accolades attached to my name. You know, I, I can understand those things better, but I think you can have grit and resilience all day, but you have to find your why is my point. Oh, I think this is fascinating because I've always, I've defined resilience as effort, as getting up at 5 a.m. and working out, as going and getting a job at Lululemon and climbing that ladder, as working towards degrees but i find it so interesting that you say no that's not resilient resilience has to do with with looking inward yeah and my friend chris house says it the best it's like you have to know your intention you can be resilient all day long but are you doing it for the right reasons for example if you're having an argument you can be resilient as ever and persistent and i'm gonna win this thing <laughs> but it's you know that's not the right reason so you have to really figure out, like, am I doing this for the right reason? And because I was running away from everything, I wasn't resilient at all. I, I could have thought in the moment I was resilient, but I was really resilient when I healed the things that I needed to heal. I was really resilient when I came out on the other end and I had gone through the muck and I had gone through the molasses and waded through the murky waters of who am I? Who am I really becoming? What things am I still burying? inside of me that I need to let out and heal. What things am I angry about still? Where's my worth? Is it here or is it back in 2004, 2008? You know, so I think that is resilience for the right reason. 
Sure, I had resilience just running away. That's a different kind. But I had true resilience and true grit when I really said, hang on, this pattern's got to stop. Like, I've got to figure out if I'm worthy of being here as just as I am. And if I'm only going to be worthy of being here because I have some sort of accolade attached to my name, then I've got to reframe that because that's not going to help me succeed in life at all. (laughs) It's a great perk. When that goes away, then what? Who am I? Let me come at this a different way. Okay, so let's say you do frame resilience in its right context, as you're saying, but you're still realizing that the work you're doing is not leading to success or that work you're doing is not leading to fulfillment or happiness. And I sat down with a psychologist who studies resilience. And one of the things that I thought was somewhat soothing was she basically said, look, resilience is is not happiness. Resilience is difficult. Resilience is discouraging at times. Resilience is demoralizing at times. And that road to whatever you're chasing sometimes is 10 years long or longer. And for me, that realization was was really important because I expected resilience to solve my problems. But when you think it's going to solve your problems and it doesn't, it leaves you feeling lost. That was my most prominent emotion was this feeling of just being lost. I was this great accomplished problem solver and I didn't know what's problem to solve, but I never stopped working hard. I never stopped getting up early and working out. I never stopped networking or learning. I never stopped investing and actually bringing in substantial income. It was just this lack of direction that was looming and being unsure of what I was working towards. So I started framing like what's going on i'm being resilient but it's not leading to me where where i want to go and i'm going to have to do some thinking offline it may be that i had frame resilience completely wrong after listening to you yeah and everybody has those different definitions but i truly think like when you talk to that psychologist like that's exactly what i'm saying is it has to be through that discomfort and through that muck where you really recognize the resilience and it's not just charging forward and being resilient in the face of all things it's it's understanding what you're resilient about and, and that makes a whole different experience for resilience because you can you know you can be resilient all day long without a purpose or without a why but knowing and, and realizing what you're being resilient with is it makes it meaningful it, may, it allows you to learn from it too and and see the pain that go you go through in that process it's like the book the war of art with resistance it's a similar thing, you know, when you're resisting everything, it's painful. <laughs> and, and in order to be resilient in that, you've got to recognize and acknowledge that. Like, it's difficult. Let's move forward to this balance. And maybe you can speak about stoicism a little bit. I want to pull back because we've been talking a lot about you know vulnerability and facing things and speaking of emotions. And I'm speaking only for me. Feel free to disagree. But living in my emotions all the time is not a healthy, productive place for me. Overindulging in vulnerability or sharing tends to be counterproductive for me, I've found. And so I like to make space to examine my emotions, but I also like to make plenty of space for just being confident and going out and kicking life in the ass. And if I tip that scale into constant emotional examination, I lose that ability some. So how do you think about that a balance of giving your emotions space and time without living in negative energy. Oh, absolutely. And that goes back to what I was saying about mood follows action. So 
when we assess our emotions and when we think about how feelings can be information, that's not a 24-7 job. That's after you put your body in motion and you just do the damn thing <laughs> and you, you create a way for yourself to learn physically or else we're just sitting there in our heads all the time. And, and sitting there in our heads is only going to cause more and more pain. So we have to actually apply and execute and fail and fail forward and fail again and do things we're afraid of and make choices we are going to regret maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You know, like what, what is it that we can do in order to then learn and understand ourselves? I, you know, I was just um, reading the other day, Kenneth Revisa stuff, and it was just similar to, we can use ourselves as a biofeedback machine. Like you learn from every experience, you learn from every performance. When we don't, and when we just say, ah, oh, good enough, whatever, <laughs> like that, that's when we run into problems, but you have to really sit, sit back and understand why you're feeling a certain way. And I think that can go hand in hand with breaking down a, a performance logistically, for example. Speaking of balance, how do you separate an experience that requires addressing something that's potentially traumatic from challenges that are just part of the human experience? Because I'm someone who doesn't get overwhelmed easily. I'm someone who I think equanimity is one of my greatest strengths. So I can feel anxiety. I can be losing sleep, but I also have complete confidence in my ability to get through it. So how do you separate this needs to be addressed versus this goes in the don't sweat the small stuff category? Me personally, I address it when it becomes a pattern. I, I just, I tune into my awareness. When it becomes a pattern that I am doing day after day after day after day after day for various different scenarios, that's when it needs to be addressed. Like, why am I doing that? What, what's happening here? So for example, I go through periods where when I sleep at night, and this is today to this day, I will wake up and my traps and my neck and my jaw are completely locked up because I've been clenching all night. And I started to pick up on why that was. And it's like anxiety for certain things that, you know, whether it's all these things on my mind for work or it's that masculine energy of achievement for me. Like when I'm in achievement mode and I'm like building the business and doing this and that and the other, I tend to do that. So when I notice that happens with that, and then three months later, it happens again. And then three months later, it happens again. I'm like, what is this about? <laughs> like, we need to have a conversation about this because this is clearly a pattern. So for me, I'm just aware of the patterning. I think it's very normal to have stress in our lives. We should have some stress in our lives. But if something is a pattern, that's something to look at. So that's one side of it that's not a specific trauma, trauma, like capital T style trauma. But if there's like a, a big trauma in your life, that has taken place and we're aware of why things bother us, I would say it's healthy enough to look at that and just be aware that that could be impacting everything, even if you don't think it is. And again, I'm not, you know, licensed professional to like go into all of that kind of stuff, but there's just so many different things that we can pick up on. Like everyone's had a different experience if someone has a really bad accident or a horrible surgery or, you know, something as an athlete it may impact things. It may impact the way you think or feel or process emotions. And that could be something to sift through is all I'm saying there. But then back to the pattern thing, that can just be simple things that we pick up on over and over again that we do to cope, quote unquote, but coping doesn't actually solve problems. Coping is just a way that we get through something. Make space for self-examination, make space for these conversations, even if it's with friends or family. 
Well, yeah. I'm, I'm mindful of your time, but just a couple more things. And this ties in, I think, pretty nicely to your conversation about your guidance counselor at Florida. But I was listening to your podcast that you did with Rich Roll. And there was a line that was moved past really quickly, but it really jumped off the page for me. And you were speaking about being in this difficult place. You were doing the work. You were seeing a therapist. You were working through your issues. But you shared this anecdote about Rich reaching out to include you in a weekend trip. And you spoke about people in your lives, whether they knew it or not, sending these subtle messages that told you, Caroline, you belong. You know, Caroline, you're interesting. Caroline, I want you here. And this is just my observation, but it appears these small acts of kindness were vitally important for your healing. Am I onto something here where the small acts of kindness kind of guiding your way along with the professional help or maybe even as important as the professional help? Of course. I think knowing people are there and learning that you don't have to explain yourself to everybody that is there for you. I think it's important for both parties to understand that, you know, sometimes people just want somebody there to talk to or to hang out with. And those little, those little things mean so much. And just the littlest hellos, the littlest check-ins, Hey, thinking of yous, you know, those types of things go a long way, especially when you're having a hard time and wading through that muck and trying to be as resilient as possible and having a hard ass time doing it. Like those things go a long way and it doesn't have to be a lot. And I'm, you know, one of my love languages is physical touch. So it's like whenever one of my friends just gives me a big bear hug, it's like, I'm fine. <laughs> like after that, I feel a thousand times better because that's just like safe for me. And everyone's different, you know, but like, I know that I've, I have certain friends in my life that are just like, Berks, you know, and don't give me the biggest hug ever. And it's like, I'm a different person after that. So even the smallest little things like that can really make someone's day if you get curious enough to know what they need to. And I think that's an important piece. Well, I think it's a powerful message. You mentioned earlier, your, your guidance counselor, your counselor at Florida, anytime you talk to him, it's like, oh, it's no big deal. And that's kind of what Rich's response was. He was like, it wasn't premeditated. It was no big deal. I found you interesting. I think the important point there is that no big deals change the trajectory of people's lives. No big deals save people's lives. Like you don't have to do extraordinary things to be extraordinary. And I think that was such a powerful message to me. And it highlighted again, when you talk about the influential voice oftentimes doesn't understand how powerful the message they're sending. And I think it's important to call those things out so that people are mindful about those subtle differences they can make throughout the day. It's a great point. It's a wonderful point. Yeah. Let's get on to Rise and, and kind of finish up by talking about what you're doing with Rise Athletics. Tell me what Rise Athletics is. Give me the story of kind of why you created it and what impact you're trying to make. So Rebecca Sony, my business partner, is a multiple time Olympian and medalist, and she's incredible. We met 15 years ago now. Uh, as little girls, like very young. And when we were both finishing up our sport, we had the exact same mindset of like, there's got to be more, got to be another way to give back to. And we're not bashing swim lessons or clinics, but that's just not what we want to do. We want to figure out a way to make this something that all athletes can feel empowered. And we just had a really great discussion right when I was finishing graduate school. And it was just, she was like, I had this idea Parents are asking me to talk to their kids on Skype. This is like Skype days. Do you have any interest in that? I'm like, sure. 
So I hop on board and before we know it, for one thing leads to another and we've completely built this business around this topic. And then we started slowly bringing on our peers to do this kind of work with us. And basically what we decided, you know, in that moment was we can help athletes feel more confident and they can work with us and they can feel more confident and they can achieve their goals and also know who they are as a human being know what they're made of so that they can be the best that they can be simple as that. And of course there's a million and one exercises and things that you can do with these athletes in our sessions, but we just, we just went for it and we became one of the first virtual platforms to do that one-on-one coaching. And this is like back in 2017, it was a really cool experience. And now we've built, uh, we have over 36 uh, coaches, mind power coaches that work with us and they're of all, Walks of life, sports, accolades from college to Olympians. They work with athletes all over the world. So we have eight different time zones of people. And it's really cool to see this grow. It's for sure been hard. It's tested us, as any entrepreneur would say. Just a lot of work, long days, long hours. Nobody may ever understand what I do. And I I battled that for a while. But it it really is a beautiful thing to see these athletes start to thrive with a big sister, big brother in their in their pocket, pretty much, to teach them the ropes and to listen to them and to love them regardless. It's a great program. So yeah, we started that about six years ago. I think it's an awesome program. And I, I'm familiar with entrepreneurship. You want an ambient level of anxiety, try entrepreneurship, especially with, with kids and a wife. But oh, one I of the things <laughs> that... One of the things I loved you said about it is that you guys focus on connection over information. And that ties back in about, I'm here to guide you. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to speak absolutes. I'm not here to direct you. And I thought that that was such a powerful, succinct way to kind of sum up what you're doing. Very last question. And then you can get out of here. I appreciate this. At this point, are you grateful for your struggles and your setbacks along the way? And I'll jump in front of you and say, I don't know if I would say absolutely yes at this point. So are you grateful that you've been through what you've been through and you've come through the other side or you're working through? Actually, yes, I I am very grateful uh, that I've been through what I've been through. Do I feel like I have more work to do? Yes. (laughs) Do I think I'm on the other side? I don't think I'll ever be on the other side. I don't think anyone's ever... Yeah, you're only on the other side of what you're currently dealing with, but you're never on, quote unquote, the grandiose other side and some, you know, wise sage that knows all like I will never be that I I don't ever want to be that. Like I was saying earlier, I almost have an allergy to being that like I always want to be learning and understanding and but I am so incredibly grateful because if I didn't have the experiences I had, I wouldn't know more about my body. I wouldn't know more about somatic experiencing and understanding what our bodies go through with stress or with trauma or understanding how to overcome that. So that was a big personal win for me. And I wouldn't understand myself as a human being when I help run a business and when I am a partner or a dog mom or, you know, like all of these things, I wouldn't know anything. (laughs) I wouldn't know anything about any of the things that I, I feel like I know now. And so I hope to continue to, to learn more and know more as I get older, because I'm sure there's in five more years, I'll sit back and say the same thing about right now. (laughs) So glad I went through those things five years ago. And I'm glad I learned those things. So I'm always very glad, but I do always know that there's more and there's always going to be more. And I'm curious about that. 
It's a journey. Yeah. I'm still working on it. Like I said, I'm working on the having right. confidence to bring all of me with me. I still like the successful side better. And so that's a, that's a journey for me. But I just want to thank you for sharing. I want to thank you for for being here today and for giving your opinion and giving your stories. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully it was helpful. And, you know, I'm always learning too. So thanks for your insights. And I think it's important to go back and forth and riff on it. If there's anything important that people could know about this podcast, we should move this part to the front or about any podcast that they ever listen to. It's that take what resonates with you. Be curious about the things that don't because it's not there to spit information and tell you what to do. It's there for you to understand yourself better and to be curious about it so that you can apply it in one way. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. How do you not, how do you know, you know? So I love that because I think it's easy to get stuck in how podcasts can just be, here you go. This is what you should do. That may be, that may be your quote. That may have to be your quote <laughs> right there. That was, that do was it. great. I'm sitting there laying <laughs> It's on what it, I'm but... most passionate about right now because I'm the same way with Instagram. It's the same way. I just, I've never used my platform to tell people what to do. I've used it to share my experiences. And if they want to, to be impacted by that and try to look within themselves because of it, that's the best thing you could do. But this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, too. I really appreciate the chat.